Hey guys, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Drew. I'm the lead pastor of Salt City Church, which Salt Company is a ministry of. It's really fun for me to be here tonight. So um, I have been working with college students in some capacity for the last 15 years. And something that I love about working with college students is the passion that you all have for Christ. But something I've realized in 15 years of college ministry is that there's two kinds of passion that a college student can have for Christ. That's represented actually by the two different definitions of the word passion. So one description of the word passion is basically hype. It's an emotional experience that's related to something or someone. So some of you think that you are passionate for Christ in a deep way, but you're merely caught up in the hype of the community. The passion for Jesus that I want to instill in you is represented by the second definition of passion, which is a willingness to suffer hardship for something. It's the willingness to give your life to Jesus. One is about hype. The other one is about your life. And so I want to talk to you about your calling. A lot of you have this conversation with yourself, and you want to know what your calling is from God. And here's a litmus test for how you can tell if God has called you to something great and glorious that is worth your life, that is worth your passion. I'm kind of stealing from a guy named Dietrich Bonhoeffer who wrote a book called The Cost of Discipleship. And he said this, when Christ calls a person He bids them to come and die. You know that your passion is true passion for Christ when you are dying daily for his sake to yourself. So we're going to be talking about the cost, the fuel, and the result of following Christ's call as we continue our study through the book of Genesis. The first thing we're going to see is that suffering is the cost of calling. We're going to see this in the life of Joseph. Genesis chapter 40, starting with verse 21, going to 41.1, says this. He restored the chief cupbearer to his position, and he placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. But he hanged the chief baker, as Joseph had interpreted to them. Yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. After two whole years, Pharaoh dreamed that he was standing by the Nile. So you remember last week, Drake talked about how Potiphar's wife had tricked Joseph into coming into her chamber, and then she tried to sleep with him, and he refused and ran away, and she had his garment in her hand, and she accused him of trying to rape her. So Joseph is now been falsely accused, and he's in prison. By God's grace, these two guys who are officials in the king's court, the king is called Pharaoh, they end up also being thrown in prison. And both of them have dreams. This is the chief cupbearer and the chief baker. And they ask Joseph what their dreams mean. And Joseph is able to interpret their dreams for them. 
and he gives a positive answer to one of them about what their dream means, that he'll be released from prison and he'll be restored to his previous position in the king's court, and he gives a negative interpretation to the other person's dream, and they are eventually hanged. And the one that is restored eventually to his original position is told by Joseph, just do one thing for me when you're restored to your position. Remember me. Now you would think that you would remember the person who saved your life. But the chief cupbearer, it says in the text, did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. And then you have these ominous words in the text. After two whole years. So here's what had happened to Joseph. Joseph is falsely accused of raping somebody. As a result, he gets put in prison. Then he's in prison. So he's in rags. The conditions are horrible. Remember, this is an ancient culture. You didn't have cable TV in the prison rooms at that time. It was awful. The food was terrible. And then, to add insult to injury, he's forgotten. And all of us know that we would rather, 10 times out of 10, experience physical suffering than we would experience deep emotional and relational pain. So he's experienced injustice, he's experienced physical pain, and now deep relational pain. And he has been in prison by the end of this thing, experiencing these types of pain for two whole years. And Joseph has thought for a long time, remember, that he has had the call of God on his life. So remember Joseph's dream. Look with me at Genesis 37, 5 through 8, just for a quick reminder, and for those of you who haven't been here for the whole journey. It says, Now Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, Hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright, and behold, our sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. His brother said to him, Are you indeed to reign over us? Are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. We often ask the question when we're suffering, why are we suffering? And part of the answer to that question is because your character needs refining. Joseph was a proud and arrogant man. He had a dream that he was going to rule over his brothers, and instead of keeping that in himself and feeling the weight of the leadership role that God was going to give to him in the future, instead of that, he immediately went to his brothers like, hey, by the way, I'm going to be the king over you. Isn't that great? Which sort of got him in this mess in the first place. And so what God is doing in his suffering and in our suffering on the pathway to the calling that he has on our life is he's refining our character in such a way that we will be able to handle the blessing that God has for our life. 
you're wondering why you're suffering, you have to hold on and understand that God has a purpose in your pain. Some of you are so zealous to chase God's calling in your life, not knowing that when you're praying for God's calling on your life, what you're asking for is more suffering. Trust me, you do not want to chase God's calling on your life. You want to wait for God's calling on your life. You want to say, speak, your servant hears. Here's what a guy named Rich Mullins says about the story of Joseph. Rich Mullins is like an old school 90s Christian artist who my mom listened to. But he's kind of a prophet and had a lot of cool stuff to say. So here's what he says about the story of Joseph. God did not give Joseph any special information about how to get from being the son of a nomad in Palestine to being Pharaoh's right-hand man in Egypt. What he did give Joseph were 11 jealous brothers, the attention of a very loose and vengeful woman, the ability to do the service of interpreting dreams and managing other people's affairs, and the grace to do that faithfully wherever he was. We're often asking the question, how do I get from where I am to where God is calling me to be? And the answer is, you don't. God gets you there. And his pathway will be deep suffering in your life. That's why when we start talking about calling of God on our life and we start talking about passion and we start talking about real Christianity, we mean business. We're not messing around here. We're not just here for the community. We're not here for a good show. We're not here for the hype. We're here because we want life that's found in Jesus. We want a purpose that's found from Jesus more than we want anything else. So that's the first thing. Suffering is the cost of calling. So how can you possibly, on the pathway of calling and passion for Jesus, how can you possibly keep on going? And we see, secondly, that faith is the fuel of calling. In the midst of deep suffering, we see beautiful faith, not deep bitterness, emerge from Joseph's life. Look at Genesis 41, verses 14 through 16. It says, Then Pharaoh sent and called Joseph, and they quickly brought him out of the pit. And when he had shaved himself and changed his clothes, he came in before Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, I have a dream, and there is no one who can interpret it. I have heard it said of you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. Joseph answered Pharaoh, it is not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. So remember, it's been two years, and Pharaoh has a dream. And he sees seven plump cows, and he sees seven really skinny, ugly-looking cows. And he's wondering what's going on in his dream. Then he sees seven ears of corn that have tons of corn cobs on them, and seven, ears of, or seven stalks of corn that have no corn on them. And he's like, what's going on? I need somebody to interpret the dream. And all of a sudden, the chief cupbearer out of nowhere is like, oh, yeah, I know a guy who can do that. It's like, where have you been, bro? Like, 
your buddy who saved your butt's been rotting in prison for two years, and all of a sudden you remember because it's going to look good on your record. And we sort of see ourselves and the chief cupbearer like all being terrible friends until it's to our advantage. And, and here's what happens. This happens real quick because Pharaoh hears about Joseph. And so Joseph had been rotted in prison for two years, and he immediately says, get that guy up here. And Joseph is filthy dirty. His hair and his beard are super long. And so they're like, you're not even presentable to go before the king. So they shave his head, and they get him ready, and they bathe him. This process was probably really, really fast. And the reason it was really, really fast is because if you don't do things fast when the king asks you to do them, he's going to kill you. So Joseph, all of a sudden, after two years of intense suffering, is before the Pharaoh. And the Pharaoh says to him, can you interpret my dream? And this is Joseph's response. It is not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. I'm going to say that that's a miracle. Here's why I'm going to say that that's a miracle. It's a miracle that Joseph still had faith. He didn't have a Bible. He didn't have any worship music. He didn't have any community. He's in a prison cell by himself. He has experienced tremendous injustice, tremendous pain, and tremendous loss. He's been out of his cell for 15 minutes, and he is being asked one question, and one of the first few words out of his mouth is to give God all the glory. And what we learn in this short account, is that faith has nothing to do with self-confidence. Faith is when you get to the end of yourself. There is no hope left in yourself. There's no hope left in your circumstances. There's no hope left in the people around you. There's no hope left in your performance. There's no hope left in anything, and you are so desperate that you call out to God for help. And so here's what happened in Joseph's life as he was in that prison. We don't know a timeline of events, but we know what happened because of the results. And what he was doing in that prison cell is he was on his face before God. And he, would, he was saying to God, it seems like all is lost. It seems like you've forsaken me. It seems like you don't care about me. It seems like you are an unjust God. But I know who you are. And I know that you're my God. And I know that you said to my ancestors that it's through our people that you would make yourself known. And then it's through us that we would be a blessing to all the nations. And so I am hanging on to that truth, even though everything in my life and everything in my circumstances says the exact opposite of that. And in the words of King David, who would come much later after Joseph, he walked through the valley of the shadow of death, and he learned a very important lesson there. Jesus is in that place. 
And so he might have known before he was in the prison cell that God was real and that he was his savior and that the steadfast love of the Lord never comes to an end and great is his faithfulness. But by the time he got out of that prison cell, he knew. Self-confidence was gone. Faith in God was his present reality. Question for you, have you ever been to the end of yourself? You know, I've gotten close over the past about 10 years. I've gone from zero to four kids. How do you do that? You, your wife gets pregnant with twins with nine months to go in an adoption process. I've subsequently found out that my two adoptive kids, one of them has a 57 IQ and functions like a high-functioning Down syndrome kid. My other adoptive kid has a traumatic brain injury. We've lost my wife's mom. We've lost both my grandpas. In fact, I was preaching my grandpa's funeral yesterday at 11 a.m. But that's not even half of it. After six months of planting this church, my son Jude was born with a congenital heart defect, and five months later, he died in my wife's arms. And I saw my five-month-old baby laying at the children's hospital in Minneapolis, dead. And do you know what I found in that place? Jesus is there. And do you know what my testimony is? This isn't me working right now. This is God working through me. And I've learned that I can't plan a church. I can't lead my family. I can't even take another step on my own strength. But my boast is not in myself. It's in God. His grace is sufficient for me because his power is made perfect in my weakness. And therefore, with the Apostle Paul, what I'm constantly boasting in, if you're around me, is my weakness so that the power of Christ might rest on me. See, endurance in the Christian life is not about being strong. The question for you tonight is not, are you strong enough to get through your suffering? Are you strong enough to get through your miscarriage or the loss of your child or the divorce that you're going to go through someday or the people that are going to forget you and leave you behind or the abuse that has happened to you in your past? or the tremendous suffering that is coming down the road that you can't even foresee, and if you saw it, even for a moment, it would take your breath away, and you're asking the question, am I strong enough to get through that? And the answer is absolutely not. The question is not, are you strong enough? The question is, are you weak enough? See, God wants to bring us to the end of ourselves, not because he wants to see us desperate, but because he wants to see us filled by his strength. He wants us to realize that we were made to breathe his breath. We were meant to play, pray his prayers. We were meant to speak his word. We were meant to be his vessels. You want to be used by God, you have to be fueled by faith, which is looking away from yourself and to him. And what we see in Joseph's life is that he was able to do the impossible. He was able to do what no magician or no person in Pharaoh's court was able to do in their own strength. He was able to interpret 
his dreams. And then he was able, after only being out of prison for 15 minutes, to instruct the Pharaoh on how he should conduct his affairs going forward. And Joseph left that meeting being appointed the second person in command in the most powerful nation on earth at the time in Egypt. And God would use him to save the Israelite people. God would use him to preserve his family lineage. And all that Joseph did is he showed up with his weakness and said, I got nothing. And he relied on God's strength. And I wonder if there would just be a few people in this room who would look away from themselves, who would declare that they are weak, who would not try to be strong and would allow God to use them if God would flip this campus upside down, if he'd flip this world upside down, if he would start moving in a way that would be miraculous, that would make the world stand by and say, wait, these are just ordinary college students. There must be a God. He must be at work. So we see that suffering is the cost of calling. We see that faith is the fuel of calling. And finally, we see that joy is the result of calling. Look what Joseph says at the end of this section, Genesis 41, verses 50 through 52. Before the year of famine came, two sons were born to Joseph. Asenath, the daughter of Potiphar, preach of On, bore them to him. Joseph called the name of the firstborn Manasseh, for he said, God has made me forget all my hardship and all my father's house. The name of the second he called Ephraim, for God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. Okay, so, so Joseph has made second in command in Egypt, and when you're second in command, the king of Egypt gives you a wife. And he gave Joseph a wife named Azanath. So not only is he second command in Egypt, he also, by a miracle of God's grace, has two kids. And so he's standing back and he's looking back at his time of imprisonment and his time of being treated unjustly. He's looking at his family and he's looking at what God is doing, using him to save the world from a famine. And he doesn't know yet that God's going to save his family. And even in naming his sons, he's remembering what God has done. So it says, he named one Manasseh for God has made me forget all my hardships. So what's that about? Well, the name Manasseh means causing to forget. And then he names his other son Ephraim. And it says, for God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. The name Ephraim means doubly fruitful. So even after all of this suffering and all of this pain that Joseph has gone through, he doesn't look back and try to go back and punish Potiphar or Potiphar's wife. He doesn't have the chief cupbearer executed for forgetting him. He doesn't use his power to oppress and victimize other people. Instead, he rejoices. He has deep joy. How is that possible? 
Because he believed that both in his suffering and in his joy, his deepest joy was found in God. He wasn't mad at God for his suffering. He was thankful to God for his suffering because he understood that his suffering had prepared him for the position and the power that he now had. He understood that had he gone straight from his initial dream to this position of power, that he would have ruined himself and that he would have ruined everyone under his leadership. And so he's able to, without bitterness, look back with thankfulness, and he's able without bitterness to look forward with gratitude and hope. Do you guys know what you would find about me if you started talking to me about the suffering that I've been through over the past decade? You know what? I'm not mad at anybody. There, I, I know that there's been people who have said hurtful things to me along the way and ha, have said insensitive things. And, and you know, there have been uh, people who have had babies. In fact, I've dedicated other people's babies since my son Jude died. And, and there's plenty of people who've got grandparents alive, and there's plenty of people whose uh, wife's mother is still alive and is helping them out with their kids and helping them change diapers and go through the different trials of life. But do you know what? I don't look back with any sense of bitterness about any of it. In fact, if I could hit a replay and I got to live whatever life I wanted to live, I would choose the life that God's given me because I trust that he has used every single circumstance in my life for his glory and for my good. And I'm actually thankful to be standing in front of you guys today and to be able to tell you this story because I bet what's happening in you is you're going, that's not possible. Because I know a lot of people who have been through a lot less than you've been through who are totally bitter and cynical about life and about their circumstances. And what I love about that is that God gets all the glory because I've just allowed him to use me. And so here's what I'm asking of you. Would you join me and Joseph in this path? Would instead of fighting against God's plan in your life and his calling on your life, for you, yes, to suffer, but in the suffering, to be fueled by faith and to land in this place of joy where you're just like, God, thank you for my life. Thank you for what you're doing. And in fact, sign me up for another round because here's what's going to happen. No matter what happens in my life, you're going to be faithful. You're going to be good. And because I know that you're going to be faithful and I know that you're going to be good, that, this is what I've concluded about my life. Whatever happens to me, that is the best possible set of circumstances that could happen to me because my circumstances are under the control of a good and sovereign God. So forget what's behind. Be excited about what's ahead. 
But, but let me give you this. My example, Joseph's example, that's not enough to fuel you. Here's what you really need. You don't just need an example. You need a savior. And this story, in the context of the whole Bible, Jesus had a Bible study with these guys on the road of Emmaus. He read the story of Joseph to him, and this is what he said. This story is about me. And my guess is, if they asked him, what do you mean this story is about you? Here's what he would have said. He would have said, guys, I'm the one who was ultimately treated unjustly. See, Joseph was treated unjustly for a period of time. I was hung on a cross. He took on the wrath of an angry woman who wouldn't sleep with him. I took on the wrath of God in your place for your sin. You see, Joseph was fueled by faith, but his life was going toward prosperity. I, Jesus, was fueled by faith as I was going toward the cross. And I trusted God, submitted to his will, and died in your place, in that place. And my joy is ultimate, because I wasn't just exalted to second in command over a little nation called Egypt. That's cute. I was exalted to second in command over the universe, sitting at the right hand of God. For the joy set before him, Jesus endured the cross. So here's what Jesus came. He did come to give you this example. He wants you to follow him, but he ultimately came to give you himself. And so here's all you have to do to receive this new kind of life where you can suffer anything and land in a place of joy. All you have to say is, Jesus, would you live your life in me? I want the salvation that you have to offer. Would you fill me so that I can be like Joseph and be used in this world for a true calling with true passion for your glory and your fame? Let's pray that. Jesus, we want to be people of true passion. Not hype, but life. We want to know Jesus and the power of his resurrection that by any means possible we might be like him. And we know that this isn't possible in our own strength. And so we, like Joseph right now, we look, first of all, we take a quick glance inside of ourselves and we just say, oh man, I got nothing. And then we look to you and we're encouraged because you can use nobodies because you are somebody great. And so we're asking that you would use our lives for your glory and for our good and help us to trust you in the process. In Jesus' name, amen.